I'm Angela Kennecke, a veteran journalist with 30 years in television news and an investigative reporter. But for the purpose of this podcast, I'm just a mom trying to find my way after the loss of a child in the opioid epidemic. I am grieving out loud, using my platform on TV and on social media to try to stop the stigma of addiction and get more people into treatment so that no other family has to go through the devastation that I and my family have experienced at the loss of our 21-year-old, Emily. Today I'm joined by Travis Oaken, a resident agent of the Drug Enforcement Agency who is in here in Sioux Falls. Thank you so much for being here today, Travis. Yeah, you bet. I wanted to talk to you and to do this podcast because I hear from so many parents who either are worried about small children eventually using and and getting into some kind of trouble with that, or who already have teenagers or young adults whom they know are using drugs and who are just scared out of their minds about what could happen. So from that perspective, what do you think is the number one thing that people need to know about the drugs that are in our communities today? Well, I think specifically when you're talking about small children and these uh, concerns that parents have obviously raising these children, whether they're small children or they're you know, middle-aged or uh, middle school-aged children, uh, I, I think it's education that's the number one thing out there. So we need to really get uh, take an effort, and, and it can't just be from the law enforcement perspective of educating these children. This education has to start at home with the parents and the family as well. Do you think that's happening? Well, I think it happens in, uh, in, in some families, um, but every family's different. Um, some, some parents may consider it uh, you know, uh, too early to start talking to their kids. Um, How early do you think people should start talking? <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's, uh, it all comes down to the maturity level of the, the child. Um, you know, I'm sure there's some parents out there that feel at uh, a very young age with their children, whether it be seven, eight years old, maybe even younger, they can start having these conversations where there's others that they, they may not feel comfortable having these conversations till their children are you know, in junior high, 12, 13 years old. But do you think that's too late? Yeah, I think there is a, definitely a, a concern about that being too late. Uh, again, it comes down to the maturity level, I think, of the, of the child, the individual. Um, however, I think the earlier we can start having these conversations and these parents uh, and parents can start having these conversations with their children, I think the better off we are. What frightens you most? I mean, you are out there seeing what's on the streets, what's, what's being sold, what's coming in. What frightens you the most about the drug supply, the illegal drug supply today? Well, I think today, uh, you know, one of our, our major concerns is uh, fentanyl and heroin, which I know most people have heard a lot about this. It's been in the media the last couple of years uh, a lot. Um, as you're probably aware with uh, fentanyl and, and heroin, and I know you are, um, you know, the uh, propensity for overdosing and, and deaths uh, is the real concern. And we're seeing this out there in these communities and even our rural communities here in the, you know, South Dakota, Sioux Falls, where you wouldn't necessarily anticipate or expect to see it. I just heard someone from a little bit smaller town from Sioux Falls say, well, it's not in my community. It's not here. And do you think it's everywhere? I do think it's everywhere. And I think that's just, it's ignorance on, on people's behalf. To Maybe where it's wishful thinking. It, wishful I always thinking, say. Um, <laughs> not ignorance, wishful thinking. Yeah, well, yeah we could see, we call it wishful thinking. Um, yeah. Sure. Uh, you know, um, but I do. I think it's, you know, it's, it's everywhere in the United States. Uh, it, it's in these small. So nobody's immune. Nobody is living in a bubble somewhere where their lives or, or the lives of their loved ones 
are not going to be affected by this. No, that is correct, yes. Yeah. What frightens you the most about maybe what risky behavior maybe some teenagers or young adults are doing these days? Well, I think, you know, the young adults and the teenagers, they just, uh, they're more apt to um, be more adventurous and try things that, uh, uh, that maybe once somebody's matured a little bit and they're not willing to take, take those risks. And today, going back and talking about, you know, heroin and fentanyl that I was talking about, we're seeing this also being coming in a, a form of a pill form where a lot of individuals, uh, you know, they believe what they're taking or maybe they, they, they think anyway what they're taking is an actual illicit uh, pharmaceutical drug that was obtained through a pharmacy, through a doctor's prescription. Um, however, what we're seeing uh, from the law enforcement community is that there's a lot of counterfeit pills out there and they're made to look like an Oxycontin or an Oxycodone. Um, and, and when these individuals are then taking these pills, they believe that there's been some kind of control measure, that these came from a pharmacy. And the reality is there hasn't been any control measure. Uh, drug trafficking organizations are willing to put almost anything into these pills as long as they can make a profit off them and people want them. And they're everywhere. I mean, you can get a pill that looks like a Xanax, that looks like an Oxycontin, that looks like something, and it, it's not. And that's correct. It may contain none of those ingredients. In fact, it may be, you know, methamphetamine or a fentanyl mixture. It could be because they found Xanax pills with cocaine and fentanyl both in them. Yeah, I mean, these these organizations they can put whatever they need to put in these pills, uh, as long as there's a market for them, they're going to be able to sell them. And how frightening is that when you think about maybe a teenager or a young adult out there just being handed a pill? They're maybe more likely to take it, especially with the way like ADHD has been treated in this country. A lot of kids have taken pills for years. Um, we give pills for aches and pains and things like that. And people may have the idea that that's safe and that this is going to be okay. Like you said, it came through legal means. Maybe it was obtained illegally, but made made legally, but obtained illegally, right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, I, I think with a lot of other um, drug use, there's, there's stigmas that are attached to them where you know, probably from a young age, people hear about smoking methamphetamine, how, how bad that can be, or, or injecting uh, heroin, you know, through the use of a needle. Um, so those stigmas, I think, keep some people away. Uh, however, with a, with a pill, uh, we've all grown up to take medications that are prescribed by doctors or even, you know, an aspirin or a Tylenol if you have a headache. So I think just our overall perception of taking pills is that, that they're, they're helpful and not harmful. How um, big of a money maker is it for those who are making these pills and they're being made all over the place, Mexico, other countries, here? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, what we're seeing right now, the, the trend is a, a lot of these pills are being made down in Mexico and they're coming up through the southwest border into the United States. Um, in the past, uh, we were seeing a lot of them coming in through or from China. Uh, however, there have been some measures taken in place that have slowed that market down a little bit. But all that is done is then offset where, uh, where these pills are now being made. Uh, and that primarily what we're seeing right now is in Mexico. I've heard that the pills can be 7 or $10 a pill. Uh, that would be making a lot of money off of a pill. Is that the case, or are they cheaper than that? Are, are you talking about street value? Yeah, buying the pills, as if someone was just buying pills. Yeah, I, I mean, every market's a little bit different, and, you know, it's going to, the, the market's dictated by supply and demand. 
Um, but correct, I mean, these pills can be manufactured at very low cost where they're mass produced. And then they come into uh, these markets where they're able to really increase the prices. For an example, uh, a pill in Detroit might go for $20, where once that pill hits a smaller, more rural market, um, you know, that same value of that pill now could be sold, it could be sold for $50. Really? One pill? $50? Depending on the types of pills, but yeah. yes, absolutely. Wow. Yes. So it's, it's an expensive habit to maintain, too, the pill habit. Uh, it can be, yes. Yeah, yeah, because really, I mean, you don't know what you're taking, so you could become, uh, if you think you're getting a pill that's an upper, it could really be a downer, and I mean, it's just so, it's confusing to the body for the biology, I would think. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, you know that's that's the scary part about it is people just have absolutely no idea what's in that pill, and, and, and they're taking them. Yeah, I've heard of cases where like a couple of teenagers have taken pills, didn't really ever do drugs or anything, and died. So it happens. Yeah, I think there's examples of that all over the country right now. Yes. And is the DEA trying to have a kinder, gentler type image? I feel like the DEA has done more outreach in recent years more talking to younger people. I know there's the 360 program. I took part in that. I was out in um, Los Angeles and spoke to 5,000 high school kids there and I met tons of really kind DEA agents who are very committed to trying to prevent the problem. Yeah, I think uh, as a society as a whole we are all kind of seeing it as you know, we can't just arrest ourselves or our way out of the problem. It's a an issue that we need to start with education and treatment and then enforcing the laws is, is part of it. Um, but as far as the DEA goes, yes, I mean we are trying to get out there into the communities to help educate that first, you know, take that first step, get out there with young people, whether it be through the program like you're talking about the DEA 360 or Red, Rib Red Ribbon Week where we're going out into schools and we're giving presentations. Um, that's something that's been uh, pushed down um, pretty heavily here in uh, the last couple years by DEA management. And that's something they want us to get out there and do. And I think it's a great program. You know, I wonder if you could um, give me a perspective on this. I've had a lot of parents and just a lot of people in general say, why are dealers putting fentanyl? And fentanyl, if you don't know, is a synthetic opioid. And the analogs of it, like carfentanil, can be even more potent, even more deadly than fentanyl. Why do these dealers want to kill their customers? Because they're killing so many people. I mean, the, the figure from 2017 was like 192 a day. Don't they want to keep their customers? Are, are they running it as businesses? I mean, how does that work? Uh, that is a good question. And it's not that the, the traffickers want to kill their customer. What they want to provide to their customer is the best high possible for as, at as cheap as price as possible. Because that's what drives their customers back to their product. Um, the, the consequences of that by trying to push those limits of how much fentanyl can we put into one pill is these overdoses and the deaths that we're seeing. So do you think they're unintentional, the deaths? I think in most cases they are absolutely unintentional. Again, the trafficker wants customers to come back to them to continue obtaining their product. The, the drug trafficking uh, market it, it is driven by, by money. They are attempting to, to make money off of an illicit product. I did have someone say to me that, that, that they don't really care if people die because the line is around the corner, that there are so many more people that continually, the demand 
is always there, even if so if so many people die, so what? There's going to be more customers coming. Uh, and I think that there are plenty of criminal organizations that look at it that way. I'm not saying that these organizations necessarily care whether or not a customer dies. What I'm saying only is that I don't think that's necessarily their, uh, you know, that's not what their intended purpose of putting these pills out in the street is. It's to give customers the best high possible so they come back. Fentanyl, though, is so frightening and so scary. And, and it's being put into everything because it gives the better high. So even if you are taking cocaine or methamphetamine, the fentanyl is in, why is it in those drugs? Because they do the opposite. I agree, but... Uh, you know, there are always all these criminal organizations. They're always looking to experiment, try new things. What might, what other markets might there be out there? Um, you're correct. Uh, you know, your opioids are are a downer, where your cocaine and you know are, and narcotics are going to be an upper. But if they find a customer base for that, then you know they're just testing the market. The other trend I've heard a lot about is how users are using maybe meth in the morning and then opioids or heroin to wind down later, that people are no longer just meth users or just heroin users, that this sort of become a lot of people doing many different kinds of drugs. Do you find that to be the case? Uh, I, I won't say that's the norm, but I will say I've seen it. We have spoken to numerous people. I just um, heard it's on the increase. So. Uh, and I, yeah, I can't say one way or another whether or not it's on the increase or not, but I can tell you, yes, we, we have been seeing that. What do you feel is the best solution to curb some of these problems in this country? Well, like I said at the beginning, I think uh, education uh, has got to be one of our uh, highest priorities. And as long as there's a demand here in the United States, there will be a, a supply to follow. Um, you know, we at the DEA, we work very hard with our uh, federal counterparts or um, uh, lo local law enforcement, state law enforcement, and we all try to work together to do what we can in our communities uh, to enforce the laws and, uh, you know, incarcerate and, and put cases on individuals that are bringing these drugs in. However, for, you know, when we are arresting these individuals, as long as there's a demand, there will be another group of individuals to follow that are supplying them. Right. In uh, the case of the suppliers, in my daughter's case, they came from Chicago and they have been since convicted of bringing in crack cocaine and um, heroin laced with fentanyl that killed people um, and certainly injured many people and killed people. The Right after these four, it was a group of four initially, and right after they were arrested, another four were arrested, and then like another four pop up to bring the drugs in. So it just seems like it's such a huge problem for us to get our arms around as a country. And do you ever feel frustrated by not being able to do more? I don't know that I feel frustrated on a daily basis. Uh, it, sometimes, I guess, if you step back and you look at the good we do do at times uh, and the individuals uh, that we are able to um, take off the streets. Uh, and you're talking about high-level deals, dealers, not just somebody who's, this, you know, this is correct. These might be suffering organizations. from substance use disorder and selling to support their habit. Correct. These, these yeah. are, you know, in a lot of cases, high-level organizations. Well, we may work an investigation for eight months, a year, or maybe longer before we're able to actually uh, charge these individuals. Um, so you feel self-satisfaction when, when you're able to do that. Uh, 
the reality is in, in, you know, in the back of our minds, sometimes we do understand that most likely there will be another uh, group that comes in to fill that void at some point in time. Um, and, and that's why I think it is so important to uh, start with education and try to slow down the, uh, the, the demand. What scares you the most when you look at what's out there and what's happening? Oh, I think right now um, it's the, the fentanyl that's coming into our country and just how it's, I don't want to say it's been embraced, but how so many people have started using it in the last, uh, you know, four or five years. Outright using it, not just getting it by mistake. That is correct. Yeah. I mean... Uh, I've heard a lot about that. I've heard people, you know, starting with the fentanyl patches, maybe stealing it from hospitals, sucking on the patches, and then, you know moving on to just wanting to use fentanyl because why? Why would they want to use fentanyl? And when I started in law enforcement 15 years ago, it was, uh, you know, heroin, uh, never heard of fentanyl. Right. I just didn't really see a lot of that. It wasn't uh, a drug that was out there on the street and readily available, at least in the Midwest where I was working at the time. When I say, when I say why, I think what I mean is I understand why people use substances and maybe I don't completely understand addiction because I don't suffer from that, but why use something so dangerous that you know could kill you? I think people think, and not that heroin is safe, not that meth is safe, none of these things are safe, but I think that people, when they use those, don't necessarily think there's a huge risk that they're going to die, even if there is a risk. But with fentanyl, they have to know what the risk is. I, I would agree. I think the message uh, out there has been loud and clear over the last year or more about how dangerous fentanyl is. Um, however, when we are talking about addiction in addicts, they are not necessarily looking at the long term or looking at the consequences. They are looking at their high. Uh, they're looking for that immediate gratification. Um, and, and that's where you run into these problems where they want the, the, the strongest high possible, but now they're, they're teetering on that line of, are they gonna survive this next hit? And I've had people in recovery tell me that at the time they didn't care if they lived or died. They just were chasing that high. That is correct. Yeah. Well, I don't want to leave everyone on that note. So <laughs> what can we do? Uh, do you think uh, as a community, I mean, you work in my community, you know, what can communities do better? And not just put it on the DEA, but what can we all do? Um, education. Uh, we as a community and uh, we just need to come together um, and find a, as many avenues as possible to get out there in front of the, the youth and educate them on these uh, harms of these drugs. How many years have you been doing this? Uh, I've been with DEA for 11 and I was a police officer for five years prior to that. Do you think attitudes are changing toward users maybe? And I, I talk a lot about stigma, you know, stopping people and shame, stopping people from getting treatment, preventing people from telling others what they're doing. A lot of people want to protect their habit as well. Um, but do you think that that's, as a community, that people who use and demand these substances have traditionally been outcasted? You know, there's a lot of names we apply to people suffering from addiction. Do you think that's changing at all? I, I don't know that I can say that it's changing, but I, I think if you look at history, I, I agree with you that uh, uh, there were a lot of negative names or connotations associated with users where now, um, you know, 
there might be more sympathy or more individuals Maybe who are compassion. sympathetic. Compassion would be mm -hmm. a great word, I think, to be used for uh, these individuals using, and, and it's you know viewed as an addiction problem, which it is an addiction problem, but then it's also given that passion versus that outcast uh, of what maybe you had seen before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to thank you so much for all the work that you do. I imagine it can be a tough job some days. It, it can be. It can also be very rewarding. Yeah, when you get someone off the streets. That is correct. Who is truly, literally killing people these days. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining me. Yep. Thank you very much. I believe we can all learn from each other as we walk through life, and by sharing our suffering, we can lessen the suffering of others. Until next time, wishing you faith, hope, and courage. To read my blogs and join us in our mission, just go to Emily's Hope at paintingapathtorecovery.org. Also, please rate and review this podcast. Thank you.